We're back, Empires of the Future, coming at you from, uh, what do you call this? This is the, the podcast room on the campus of First Southern Baptist Church, I guess is what you can call all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to finish this book today, aren't we? Yes, we are. <laughs> we are going to get all the way through. I've only got two chapters left, um, and I think they, they go well together. The last chapter, uh, for sure, I think is a great closing a, to the book. Uh, Carl Truman does a great job. Um, kind of closing things up. For those of you who are maybe just tuning in, we have been making our way through uh, the book Strange New World by Carl Truman. Um, so if you are just tuning tuning in, you have missed everything. Uh, so you need to go back and listen to the last several podcasts in order to get caught back up. So right, just, this will be part six. Part six, yeah. So just set aside about uh, nine hours, <laughs> go listen to those, get caught back up, and then come back and join us. Well, it's great to have you back after your nine-hour journey through our podcast, <laughs> and uh, we're going to get in now to the last two chapters of Strange New World. What do you think of that, Jackson? I think that that's what we should do. Um, so, you and I were talking right before we started here that uh, the book is set up in an interesting way. You know, uh, we started out with this examination of what is it, what is it sounds like a super deep phrase, which is uh, expressive individualism. Mm-hmm. Now... One th- important thing about the Bible, and one important thing, frankly, about social science, which is a lot of what this is, as well as that um, these complicated terms, don't be intimidated by them because you're living in them. This mm. is the water that you're swimming in, whether or not you realize it. And expressive individualism basically says this. The most important thing about life is that you get what you want, mm-hmm. that you are heard, and that other people look at you and say, you matter and you are validated. Well, here's the thing. I mean, one, frankly, you and I are Christians and we say, no, the most important thing is that God is known without life, which God is life. You are nothing but uh, an empty vessel with nothing to fill you. And that's what you'll feel like without God, without any kind of brush with God whatsoever. But praise God that he does give us brushes with him in all kinds of ways. The sun comes up every morning because he tells it to. And that in itself is evidence, as the scripture says, that God is at work. He did, it didn't, it's not an accident that the sun came up. He says to you, my mercies are new every morning. That's the second thing. Through scripture, we can know what he's doing in our world. Mm-hmm. And so a work like this, while listen, you and I have talked about being intimidated and trying to sort out some of the specialized terminology and having, you know, you're still in seminary, having gone through seminary. A lot of the struggle of seminary is dealing with special terminology all the time. Mm-hmm. But the Bible is given to us to understand what we're going through and what we face in this world. And so um, it's worth it. I guess what I'm saying is it's worth it. It's worth, worth struggling through it because you cannot just buy the notion that, hey, the most important thing of all is that you would be heard. Mm-hmm. Look, it matters that you would be heard. But what matters more is that God would be known. And then when he is known to you, you can be known to him. And this life, in there is life. And so um, we started there, and we moved through, Carl Truman walking us through, okay? If, if that's sort of been the trajectory of the West, trying to raise up all these individuals who then are trying to express themselves and incidentally have sort of not realized but have given up on community in a lot of ways to their own detriment, to our own detriment. This is not something you and I are exempt from. Right. <laughs> it's something that as we have bought these ideas about, well, just whatever you do, express yourself. Make sure that your voice is heard. It's just not as simple as that. Mm-hmm. And he's moved us through uh, a lot of different stages up to where we were last week, which was the biggest 
story that has changed the face of the Western world in the past, say, 70 years, and that is the story of the LGBTQ movement and this focus on sexuality and that this idea of sexuality being so central to who you are and that if you don't get pleasures, then what's worth living in life? To which we said, life is more than pleasures. Yeah. We are not excluding pleasures, but life is more than pleasure. And we are turning again today uh, to two things. One, which is current kind of concerns as far as how are we all going to coexist together? And then we'll end with, okay, Christians, what, what do we do? Mm-hmm. Given that this is our assessment of where we are. And so that's sort of a, a roadmap as, uh, as I see it. Um, Anything about that roadmap that I, I skipped a significant part of the middle because it's hard to summarize the, mm-hmm. the whole book. Yeah, yeah. I would just encourage you guys, you know, pick up the book, check it out for yep. yourself. Yep. You'll maybe understand kind of um, what we're talking about here. But I think what you said is true. Like, as we've been going through this, I think it could be easy to hear us talking here on our podcast. And and I think there the risk is also true of us thinking this way of ourselves, but thinking that we are somehow, you know, just above this yep. and that. Yeah, good thing I've got this figured out, and this book has shown me, uh, you know, what not to do, and I'm not doing any of these things. Uh, what Jackson said is true: is we struggle with these same things as well, and um, it's all due because of pride. Like because of pride, I have a innate kind of desire within me, within my flesh, um, to put myself first in in each and every situation in which I find myself, um, and the idea being that that will lead to my happiness and satisfaction. And um, what Carl Truman is pointing out in the book, and I think what the Bible would tell us as well, is that, yeah, that's not necessarily going to lead to your satisfaction. Uh, Not necessarily. In fact, I would say it's 100% not going to lead to your satisfaction. But myself, Jackson, our churches, our families, we buy into that as well, though. And and so we have to fight against that. So this book is helpful in helping us recognize this, how it is developed, um, in learning how we can combat it. Yeah, and so uh, here we are in chapter 8. This chapter is called Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit of Happiness. Uh, that's a term familiar to most people. Thomas Jefferson penned it, uh, and we, we hear it. I don't know how much we think about it, but it's useful at this point in this story, in the story of kind of Strange New World, uh, because this is a pretty good summary of the way we tend to approach uh, our sort of life strategy mm-hmm. uh, in the West, that what you want is you want to have vibrancy. You want to have, seek to squeeze uh, the juice out of life and find the good stuff and cling to it. Uh, and then liberty, which we hear so much about freedom and liberty, uh, in particular, this kind of a refined view, it would be a nice way to say it, uh, oversimplified view would be another way to say it, of liberty as freedom from. No one oppressing me, no one keeping me from do the things in, an, in any moment that I might want to do. Uh, that's mm-hmm. been the idea of liberty that we've lived by. And then the pursuit of happiness, happiness also uh, brought down to pleasure yeah. in a lot of ways. Yep. This is, um, and, and to anyone you kind of go, well, yeah, well, I hope that today is a little bit of a help to say some of these things are, are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're for that, but there are broader views on what those things mean, and a lot of what we've sort of swallowed is oversimplified views of those, and that's where we'll, where we'll be here in Chapter 8. Yeah. 
Yeah, and so we start with life and like what what does it mean to you know when we think about the American way uh, pursue life or um, you know to to have the freedom of of life to live as we ought to live and and as we want to live I think in a lot of ways um, and I think that's a good question that that needs to be talked about is what do we mean when we talk about life liberty and the pursuit of happiness um, Peter Singer kind of provo- proposes a uh, an answer to the question that being that to be truly human. One must have the ability to express oneself, to conceptualize and act intentionally toward the future, and to act deliberately in ways that further one's own happiness. And we, as you have already said, here comes this word, happiness again. And, and when we think about what does it mean to further your own happiness, so often happiness, as you just said, is basically boiled down to pleasure. Yep. Uh, and what we as as Christians, and I think what me and Jackson, as pastors especially, would want to encourage you is to maybe let's expand our, our view of, of this and think of not so much reducing happiness down to pleasure, but expanding it to joy. Yeah. Uh, I think it'd be a much better way of thinking through these things, um, and that'd be thinking about them in a way that's very different from the culture around us. Right. I mean, and and, and you know, if, if you hear that and you kind of go, well, I don't even know what joy means. Well, Look, you know what responsibility is, and a part of happiness, strangely enough, is keeping your responsibilities. Uh, so, for instance, uh, look uh, to anyone who has children. It's not always easy to be a parent. You don't just, you know, it's not all daisies, but it is still good and enjoyable, uh, and it is good in so many ways to be a parent. Mm-hmm. It is as dominating a responsibility as you'll ever experience. Mm-hmm. But that's why happiness is more complicated than just pleasure. Because anyone, and it's not just that. If you could have an honest conversation with someone about friendship, is friendship always as simple as pleasure? Well, no. Friendship is going to require you sooner or later to do things that might not be easy for you. Um, I bought a truck from my dad. I never realized how many people had to use for a truck until I got one. <laughs> and then they called me and said, hey, I like it that you got that truck. What are you doing on Saturday? Well, then I had a new phase of my life where all my Saturdays aren't free, but then I have to figure out, okay, how, how do I operate given that I do have this power to help people and I want to help my friends, but I can't constantly be doing this. Well, that's just a little microcosm of the fact that we all have abilities. Yeah. And we... It goes way beyond the simple idea of pleasure to go, well, every good thing is also uh, a responsibility. And what do you do about that fact? And so it's just more complicated. And another thing you can say about Peter Singer, if you kind of go, well, that sounds fine to be truly human. One must have the ability to express oneself, to conceptualize and act intentionally toward the future and to act deliberately in ways that further one's own happiness. Uh, Where Peter Singer is going Mm -hmm. is, okay, what about somebody then who has Down syndrome? Yeah. What about someone who uh, is, has dementia? And Peter Singer is all the way to the point of saying, oh, certainly some people are not um, alive even though they look alive. Mm-hmm. And even further concerning, okay, do people have dignity? Well, as long as they meet certain conditions, yeah. they have dignity. Yep. And, and that's, <laughs> yeah. So, and that's what you see the problem is with this definition is that there's a lot of, uh, a lot of people who are excluded from this definition, as you've already said, people who are uh, have severe mental illness, uh, have 
issues that cause them to be incapable of doing these things that he's kind of laid out. Uh, but even as if you've heard Peter Singer's name brought up, there's a good chance he's heard it brought up in the context of abortion, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, he, he is in favor of abortion. And the argument is not even just whether or not this is a life, but whether or not it is a, a, a life with the capabilities of meeting these criteria to be truly human, as he says, uh, personhood, we might say. Uh-huh. And therefore, it's a life, but not a life like yours and mine. Uh, and therefore, it's a different different level of life, a lower level. And I mean, I'm saying these things and you hear the... Yeah, if, if this if, doesn't so, sound problematic to yeah. you, uh, please listen to this again. Yep. I think that, what was the German phrase, Lebens and Wirtes Lebens, life unworthy of life. Right. Um, it's, and how do you get to determine that? Who gets to determine exactly, that? Exactly, exactly. Peter Singer would be happy to propose this as the determining definition. Right. Um, problem solved. Well, no, the problem is not solved. Because right. uh, this, <laughs> thankfully, um, we are not bound to Peter Singer's interpretation of what it means to be human. Um, we are bound, as, as Christians... We are bound to a authority far higher than Peter Singer, right. uh, who would say, "No, there's a different uh, there's a different standard for life and and personhood and humanity than that." Right. And if you hear that and you go, "Okay, I can see that there's some work to be done there to sort that out and to think through what we're doing in that regard," I agree. Um, and our political system uh, is designed in such a way to allow discussion, debate. Uh, even all the way to the extent that we have uh, a House of Representatives and a Senate who legislate and, and put laws, and then we as people get to vote on them. Um, so what is required in that situation is free speech mm-hmm. so that you can hear people debate these sort of things. And that is the exact trajectory that Carl Truman is on here because he says, I'm glad you mentioned free speech. How's free speech doing today? Mm-hmm. And if you haven't kept up with this, I do want to warn you. Look, I, I didn't. I'll say it like this. I never imagined back in high school when I heard about freedom of speech, freedom of religion, that I would need to be a voice saying, hey, guys, these are good. Let's make sure we keep these. But I, I certainly I feel that I need to be a voice to say everything I have read about political theory, everything that I have read about the way pluralistic political systems work. We have got to be able to speak our minds to each other, whether it's offensive or not, because... Without that, we cannot come to meaningful conclusions. You have to be able to think freely and then speak freely, mm-hmm. which involves freedom uh, in terms of media uh, as p- much as possible, unbiased reporting and all of these things. If you don't have that, no clear decisions are possible. And in fact, you just tend towards tyranny. You tend towards, well, it's, it's too unsafe to allow regular people to talk so let's just pick some people who are trustworthy to make decisions for us and abdicate our responsibility to them. Here's what Carl Truman says. Uh, he asks questions in here. Do we have the freedom to speak against all ideologies? Okay. If your answer is yes, well, how about political correctness? Um, how about subjectivism, which is an ideology that claims there is nothing objective? Mm-hmm. There is only opinions, and there is ultimately only power. Only people in various positions of power doing what they can do, pushing what they can push. Uh, Well, one, that's not an objective statement, but two, can we speak against these things? Because uh, in colleges, if you haven't kept up with what's been going on at colleges, which are supposed to be the breeding ground for freedom of speech, for a civil society, uh, 
Instead, what's been breeding since 2016 is safe spaces and trigger warnings and complaints by students to say, I don't want to hear certain speakers who might disagree with me or my leanings on various uh, issues. And this, uh, look, uh, we are to the point that we do have on the far left and the far right different groups who are uh, willing to shut down speakers. I would say they're more on the far left. This is a more of a concern from that direction, but it is on both sides. But I say all this to say freedom of speech is a concern as soon as you have people who are afraid to speak their mind about what they really think. And if, if anyone is hearing this and does not think people are afraid to speak their mind, if they disagree with sort of accepted notions uh, of, say, things like... Uh, marriage, gender, sexuality, um, things that most people agreed upon, such as marriages between one man and one woman. That was very common in the recent past. Um, but there is a new orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. And on college campuses to start with, but then you move to businesses, large companies, and there are plenty of people who are afraid to speak their mind about these issues. That is the beginning of censorship. That is, that is already present, and we are moving beyond that. People have lost their jobs over these sorts of issues, and, and I, you hear people, well, well, but private companies can make these sorts of decisions. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, private companies can, but in our system as a whole, how is this all going to work out where people can be heard for what they really believe so that we can decide how we're going to handle uh, the situation that we're operating in, how we're going to have, how we're going to have civil society, literally, how are we going to disagree and still have peace? Yeah. And and that becomes a, a, a problem. And you can see where the breakdown of freedom of speech, you can begin to understand why it's happening. You know, as the book is pointing out self, um, the self becomes supreme, and not only is the self supreme, but the sexualized self yep. is essential to where when you think about who am I, what is your identity found in? If your identity is found in your sexuality, your um, what, whatever it may be, and then yep. someone in their speech begins to speak against your sexuality or disagree with this aspect that you consider so central to yourself, this is where we begin to have the language like we have so common today where even words and speech becomes an attack that it is violence and the word violence is now being applied to speech and speech which is in many cases simply disagreeing with a certain ideology or a certain lifestyle but because the the culture has largely bought into this idea of the self and you be yourself being so centrally located in these types of identities um, this is where we get identity politics from, right? Yep. That if anyone says anything that you perceive as an opposition to this identity of yours, then they are attacking you personally, and mm-hmm. it is now becoming a, a form of quote-unquote violence yep. in the culture today. And then, it, well, we're just a hop, skip, and a jump away from what is happening in certain countries where right. people are being, um, being uh, having lawsuits brought against them and being prosecuted for things that they have said right. uh, that were simply in opposition to the um, ideology of the day or, or of that specific group that they spoke against or whatever the case may be. Um, so like, you can very easily connect the dots from where we started to where we are now. And even if you disagree with, which I do, I disagree with being where we are now, where 
uh, speech can be considered an attack or violence just from me not affirming someone or disagreeing with them in an area of, say, homosexuality or transgenderism. That has now become attack, an attack because I am directly speaking against who they are as a person yeah. in their mind. So it comes up, it clearly poses problems to freedom of speech and freedom of religion. Well, and there's a story that really illustrates this, and it is, it is fascinating, uh, you know, reading this, that if you're not familiar with Salman Rushdie, who's a name that I'd only heard uh, a little bit before reading this book, um, 30 years ago, Salman Rushdie uh, wrote a book, uh, and it was, it, it was in reference to Islam, uh, and he wrote a book that was uh, very scathing. Uh, it, it was not Islam positive, so much so that Islam being an honor religion, the Ayatollah, Ayatollah Khomeini uh, called for him to be killed. Words are powerful. And uh, we believe in freedom of speech. So at the time, in a different climate 30 years ago, many people stood up for Salman Rushdie and said, we have to have freedom of speech. People have to be able to criticize uh, religions. And, and it may sound strange to someone, two pastors sitting here saying, no, I, I, you ought to be able to criticize religions. Yeah. You should. Um, and 30 years ago, that was pretty widely agreed upon. Now, that is not the case uh, when you're dealing with Islam. Um, most sections of Islam, most sects of Islam, uh, practice Islam as an honor religion, so that to speak against the Prophet Muhammad uh, requires restitution, so that someone would do something about that, mm -hmm. because his honor must be protected. This right. is, uh, for those of you who kind of go, I don't have anything, any understanding of this, well, Eastern culture is different, and this is a very old system, uh, but you better look into it if you want to know more about this. So that happened. Uh, Salman Rushdie was not killed. He had been attacked. Um, but in the time between this book was written mm -hmm. and now Salman Rushdie, who is quite aged now, was speaking here in the United States, out east, at a very peaceful retreat center known for... Um, known as a place in the United States where sort of the intelligentsia go to have a quiet, peaceful retreat. Uh, and he was speaking. Uh, you need to imagine him at a kind of a cabin with a lake nearby and was rushed by someone who, uh, who was following uh, the call uh, of the Ayatollah. And Salman Rushdie was stabbed somewhere around 10 times just within, uh, within the past month this has happened. And uh, that's violence. Uh, words, words are powerful, mm -hmm. but words are not violence. And if we can't keep our categories straight, we are in danger of losing free speech and losing track of the significance of actual physical violence. Right. And this yeah. is a great story to illustrate where we stand on that right now. I mean, this is of all the things we've said in say the last 10 minutes, that's that story is in those two stories are a powerful summary of the danger that we are in right now. Yep. And thankfully, Salman Rushdie is living. And he, he was not killed, even though he, again, is a, quite an old man. Mm -hmm. um, he is still living. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, like you said, we're, we're not proposing here that, uh, that we hold to the old adage, sticks and stones may right, break right, my right, bones, right. but words can never hurt me. That's not what we're trying to say. We're not trying to say that um, it's good for us to go or just say whatever we want, no consequences, no morality attached. 
That's absolutely not the case. And we, we would encourage you and encourage each other. Let's use our words wisely. Right. Let's use our words to edify. Let's use our words to encourage. And when necessary, let's use our words in grace and out of love for one another to rebuke. Yep. Um, but, but words do have an effect. But uh, to come to the place where, as you're saying, we are now in the culture where um, my words against you are akin to me stabbing you, uh, which is largely the point that we're at now in, in many people's eyes, um, that is a dangerous place to be. And that is a sign of, of great, great moral confusion. Right. Right. And so um, th- that's, that's life and liberty. Uh, that we, we are in a struggle for what these words mean. And I, and I hope that if you're hearing this, you spend some time thinking about, okay, then apparently we got to rethink this a little more. If life is more than just um, cognitive capability, yeah, it, 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 what if it is? You know, if liberty is more than just freedom from, yeah, what if liberty is freedom too? What if liberty is also about finding life and then sticking to it and having the ability to stick to it, having discipline, having the capacity to live for more than just what you're against. Mm-hmm. Yep. I, I hope that we can. I mean, right. and I call it the Protestant disease to be defined by what you're against. Yeah. It's, it's a danger. It's a danger that we all can, even if you have no Protestantism in you whatsoever, no experience with it. Look, this country was largely Protestant, and that kind of disease is still around, that if you're only defined by what you're against, and you're not defined, and you're not guided by what you're for. We've got to decide what we're for. And so then this leads to... Um, struggles that we have about, okay, what are we going to do with religion in this country then? Um, Really, the experiment we're a part of was an experiment in going, you know what? I mean, look, the founders of this country were very aware that uh, they they had seen in Europe a couple hundred years of religious wars, and they didn't want that. So what they said was, we would like to not have the government get too much involved in religion. So it's sort of a a position of... um, we don't want to define religion. We just want to have our hands off of it as a government. And that is the beginning position. That's, for instance, why uh, churches are tax exempt, Mm -hmm. Uh, because the government doesn't want to be in the business of defining what is a proper religion and what isn't. Mm -hmm. Uh, they, They want to say, look, overall, and if you look into this still to this day, it's true, overall, religious involvement, this is speaking sociologically, religious involvement, drives uh, at least five major markers of positive gains for society because you're involved in a community, so you care about other people, um, and, and a lot of things like you, you help people when they struggle, you are concerned about your neighborhood, all kinds of things, and that's still the case. Anybody who wants to know about that, you can look into that. Um, but in our day, the struggle is, okay, but religion feels like it defines these basic goods, and what do we do about that? Mm-hmm. Um, so here's, uh, here's the first story. And, and many people remember, and here we are in Indiana, you and I, uh, in 2015, here in Indiana, Governor Mike Pence, who was governor at the time, uh, signed a version of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. It, this was 2015. And this was an answer to a question. Mm-hmm. Because of the moves that had come about in the culture, we didn't really know uh, exactly what was going to happen in response to a question like this. Was a Christian school required to hire someone, hire someone, excuse me, who is uh, practicing homosexuality openly? Uh, the Bible speaks clearly on this issue. 
So what is a Christian school to do Mm -hmm. uh, given that, for instance, um, we would not hire someone who was a a jewel thief and who was committing a a crime, uh, but then since the culture had moved to affirm homosexuality, and and I say the culture, remember that... uh, the approval of same-sex marriage came about by an executive order uh, and by the move of uh, the Justice Department to not defend, uh, the, for instance, the Defense of Marriage Act, and then by the Obama administration uh, to, to s- open this country to same-sex marriage. Well, that change led to efforts, and especially I mean, one of the efforts here in Indiana, to say, well, look, we want to protect religious freedom because... Uh, those who operate, say, a Christian school must operate according to their conscience. Uh, small privately owned companies, m- many people might remember the Hobby Lobby case was a big case at this mm-hmm. time. Uh, Hobby Lobby is privately held. Uh, can they operate according to their convictions and how they hire? Um, and so these questions were discussed. Uh, back at that time, it was, I, I'm not I wouldn't say as hard as it might be to discuss now, but still it was challenging to discuss these issues. And I will openly say, look, this is an issue that is easily misunderstood, hard to get at what is exactly happening sure. here, but this country has a long history of conscience protection, yeah. especially in religious matters. So uh, this is related to, to uh, another question many people at least heard about. Is a Christian baker required to use his or her gifts to celebrate a marriage between two people of the same gender? You can see how these questions immediately are brought on by the changes that came in the mid-2010s. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and uh, so I remember back when this came down from, uh, from Mike Pence's office, uh, who was the governor at the time, um, and man, I just remember watching the the media backlash and and seeing uh, at the time Governor now former Vice President Pence um, on there just man being attacked by these people just oh they absolutely hated him for this and what was it that they were hating him for? They were hating him for seeking to protect the consciences of religious people. Um, his attempt in no way was to um, even make any sort of statement with regards to homosexuality or transgenderism. His attempt was simply to say, if you operate a business uh, and have a a conscience that is bound by your religion, you ought not be forced to break that conscience if, you know, it is reasonably held. And man, the the attacks came on strong, strong, strong. And he points out in the book that what ultimately happened was that uh, a newer more watered-down version of the bill was put forward and, and then ultimately signed into law, which virtually had no effect um, at all with regard. It, it was basically a pointless document then at that point, which just it sidestepped the issue altogether. Um, right, right, and this was clear. Um, you know, look, I believe me, I don't keep up with the day-to-day workings of the Justice Department or the Supreme Court, but it was clear even... Uh, from the moment that the Obergefell decision, which legalized same-sex marriage, came down, uh, the Justice Department under the Obama administration was asked about religious institutions and their hiring practices and how this would affect them. And all that the representative of the Obama administration had to say was, well, that will be an issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and so 
we we like to think that these uh, very well trained and for the most part a lot of them are very well trained uh, lawyers and uh, high level officials have worked all this out. Oh, in this case, not at all. Yeah. Um, we are dealing with the fallout of it because you can't overnight take an institution like marriage, which um, under natural law for thousands of years meant that men and women join in a conjugal union for the purposes of constant stable care of one another and then the bearing of children and then the raising of those children uh, that this has been the institution for thousands of years. And you can't overnight go, well, let's say men and women, or maybe man and man, woman and woman. Yeah. And then, by the way, apparently we have like some reproductive technologies that, well, yeah, yeah, they're very costly, but I'm sure they'll work it out somehow. Uh, and then, uh, you know, that we'll just change that. And I, I don't know, maybe there'll be some other stuff too, but just wait and see on that for now. Go on with go on with what we have said, and it's just kind of like if you can't see how much more complicated this makes this uh, the whole family dynamic. Uh, well, then uh, that's what we've been dealing with in a lot of ways, mm -hmm. and I mean in the previous episode in, in part five of this uh, discussion of Strange New World, we talked about some very complicating factors that you can get into with that, and so one thing to say about this is. The conclusion by uh, that Justice Department was this, that the only thing that would lead someone to be against same-sex marriage uh, was uh, a constitutional animus. Mm -hmm. And that's legal language, uh, and the way Carl Truman translate that, it translates that as irrational bigotry uh, on the part of someone who is against it. And that was... That was the claim uh, in the Windsor decision of 2012. Now, this is a decision that uh, they decided not to defend the Defense of Marriage Act, to right. not uphold it. And that's, this is also the Obama administration. Um, and, and so the thing to say is you can be against same-sex marriage and it not be about bigotry. Um, the desire for marriage only comes in a society at the very least who has a Christian memory. Mm -hmm. uh, there was, there were male and female relationships before Christianity hit the Western world. Uh, they were in ancient Greece dominated by powerful men mm -hmm. and women had no status. Uh, so marriage in, in everything that we think of it has Christianity all over it. So then, uh, Pre-Christian times, men did whatever they wanted sexually, especially if they were powerful. Women, again, had no say. Now Christianity has changed the Western world. But if, you, if you've ever thought about the answer to the question, why did it take, uh, say, even if you disregard B.C., uh, before Christ, if you say 2,000 years of recorded uh, history post-Christ, why did it take 2,000 years for a request for same-sex marriage? Uh, well, that's because you have to have a strange society which used to be Christian, so it has this idea of marriage, but then is moving away from Christianity towards whatever comes after Christianity, one of those things being homosexuality, but then wants a thing that is present, which is marriage. And incidentally, if you don't think what I'm saying is true, I would encourage you to look up the numbers on how many people who are practicing gays or lesbians who get married, because the number for gay men is something like 
two percent, mm. and the number for lesbian women is something like four percent. Because the interest yeah. in a two-person union, which is protected and seeking not to involve any other partners, is actually quite low. Yeah. Um, this it, it, so that's that's kind of complicated, but. Uh, this is really important. This is actually what we are seeing now. We are in a society that used to be defined by Christianity and is forgotten and is now looking around at various pieces going, surely some of these pieces will help me to have a happy life. And what we are saying is you're missing. It's not about any of the pieces. It is about God who put all those pieces there. And then we humans, which God does this, God lives messy with us and he gives us all these pieces and then we try to make our own lives and exclude him. And we all do this various times. This is why we still struggle as sinners day by day. We, we, we take them away and then we say, God, I've got this. And then we wreck it. (laughs) And then God is so good to come to us and go, when you are done fighting me off, I'll, I'm going to let you have some of these good things. I'm not going to be so cruel as to take everything away from you. But if it's for your good, I will take it away from you. And this is, the, this is what's happening between all of us and God all the time. And, and this is being played out on a large scale right now. Um, and so this happens. Uh, this is what we experience. Uh, and what we are saying sitting here is that, look, God made us to operate in a certain way. God made the human machine to want certain things. And he knows how to please us. And in fact, what we need the most is him. Yeah. Nothing else will satisfy We'll try to replace him with everything else, but it won't work. And that's what we're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and here's kind of the, everything that you just said, which I, I agree with all of it to say those things now is becoming completely inappropriate, completely unacceptable. Um, you now for saying those things, Jackson, hate to break it to you. You are a bigot. Uh, so I'm, I'm sorry, hate to break it to you, but according to the world, that that is where we are coming now. Where mm-hmm. to say those kinds of things is, uh, even as you said, like it is now. Even coming down from Supreme Court decisions, uh, the conclusion is being made by these powers that be. Uh, well, no one would have any good reason reason for opposing these things unless they're just a bigot. And that's man, that's what everyone kind of accepts now in the culture that right. to accept to deny these things, to be opposed to these things, it cannot possibly be out of love for me or for these people, it could only be out of animosity. And and we want to stand here sort of in the gap saying, that's absolutely not true. I, I, I want to wholeheartedly tell you I, that, that 100%, the, the worst thing that I could do for you is to just say, yes, go do you. Go be what you want to be. Have at it. Because that is me saying, go ahead and go die. I don't care. Right. And that is not what I want for, for anyone. Right. Uh, it is not even just about, and we, we've talked about this before, what's best for human flourishing. Um, well, I, you and I would agree that what's best for human flourishing is following a biblical model, a God-ordained, God-created model, uh, what we would call the natural law. Like That exists for a reason, and to follow that would lead to the greatest amount of human flourishing. However, even the greatest amount of human, human flourishing is not the reason I would say to someone practicing homosexuality or transgenderism or even even someone uh, rejecting the biblical concept of marriage and and reserving uh, sexual relations for uh, the marriage union, I would say to them, what you're doing is wrong and sinful and it is a sin against a holy God. And that's the biggest problem with it 
is that as you stand here um, or, or sit here belligerently rebelling against God, the danger is not just to our society, but the right. danger is to you for all of eternity. And so it's it's the most loving thing I can do to say you need to repent yeah. and you need to to turn to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The same as myself, the right. same as Jackson, the same as I mean, this is the gospel we preach to everyone, not just the gospel to homosexuals, not just the gospel to transgenders, not just the gospel to X, Y, or Z. This is the gospel. And the most loving thing that we can do for these people is to stand in opposition to what they're doing and say, there is something better. And what what you have, uh, what you are celebrating, what you are desiring, it's not going to satisfy you. And that's the sad news. The good news is there's something that will. Right. Um. So this chapter uh, will tie up pretty soon. Uh, here's the opposing view. Uh, if that's not where you want to land, Anthony Kennedy, uh, in his decision in Windsor, uh, which led to the Obergefell decision, legalizing same-sex, ma- same-sex marriage, Justice Anthony Kennedy, who has since retired, wrote this in his opinion. He said, quote, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under compulsion of the state. We are not capable Mm -hmm. of defining our own concept of existence. And that's down to things like, look, I can't define whether or not I have to breathe, mm-hmm. nor can I define what I'm made of inside. I can't even decide how I'm going to feel in the next two hours. I don't have that power. We're way too small. Um, and I don't know. Uh, Anthony Kennedy sounds like a, some sort of poetic soul, but his, his soul has gotten off on the wrong direction here. Right. Uh, you don't often see lawyers kind of write this way, no. uh, but the Supreme Court is a unique place. And... The struggle here, I mean, this is philosophy he's writing, and we don't have the right nor the capacity to define our own concept of existence or of meaning. One of the stinking things people have noticed over the past 20 years of trying to do this is if you define it yourself, you'll remember that you defined it yourself and that it's all fake. You're making it up as you go, and that's not satisfying. It's not satisfactory. We, we are too small to define our own concept of existence or meaning or of the universe. That one's, that one's laughable. Mm-hmm. I define the universe as not having gravity. I define the universe as my car's a spaceship. You can't define the universe. Yeah. The universe is doing what it's doing. Yeah. You've got to figure out how to understand it, not yeah. define it. Yeah, and how to understand your place in it. Yes. Yeah. And, and what's interesting here is he basically takes it's either one of these or the other. Either you have the right or you are the one responsible for, as he says, quote unquote, defining the uh, concept, your concept of existence, of meaning of the universe, the mystery of human life. Either, this is Justice Kennedy's kind of position, either it is the you, the individual that does that, or us, the state, Um, as though there's no other possible option as who could define these things. Uh, that it is either the individual or it's the state. And and he concludes then, well, then it has to be left with the individual. Uh, it is, as he says, at the heart of liberty, one's right to define these things. And we would say, we agree with you, Justice Kennedy. It is not the pl- place of the state to define these things. 
but we would disagree in that it is 100% absolutely the right of the person to define all these things. Right. Uh, we would say, surely there is another higher authority uh, that can define these things uh, for us and, and give us clarity on these issues. And then we, both the individual and the state, live and operate within that. Right. That's the ideal solution. I mean, it, it, this language... If I'm defining my own concept of existence, I guess I could define myself as a hamster. I could define myself as an angel. Right. I could define myself in thousands of different ways. And if you go, well, you're just caricaturing his argument. His argument is right here. Yeah. And no, I mean, what you're saying is absolutely true. I'm not leaving it to the state to define this, but praise God there's more going on than just us small individuals and the state. Yeah. <laughs> But we cannot just say, if, if you say, well, what about people who don't want to believe in God? That's absolutely fine. But we cannot be beholden to another individual's self-definition. Right. I can't be beholden to that. That is nonsense. I can't have somebody else say to me, I'm a hamster. Therefore, you have to call me a hamster. And again, if that sounds ridiculous to you, oh, watch. The first generation has no idea where all this is going to go yeah. to say to somebody, hey, until you define yourself, man, who am I to think I know anything about you? Well, thankfully, there's reality, right. which has all kinds of characteristics that are discernible to us through our senses as well as other means. And so uh, this is just woefully inadequate as yeah. a way of figuring out what to do and how to handle reality. Yeah. And while that is true in a 5-4 decision, this won the day. And if, uh, and, and that's just where we stand. That's, yeah. That is where we have gotten to. Yeah. Uh, and so on this chapter, the last thing I would like to say is that um, there's a lot of discussions about tolerance. Uh, tolerance was initially a political concept that meant kind of respect. It was more related to the word respect. You do your thing over there in a pluralistic society. I'll do my thing. And we'll kind of, when we disagree, leave each other alone as much as we can. Tolerance has come to mean everybody's right which yeah. it could never have meant. But even to some, tolerance is not acceptable because it indicates disapproval. Uh, we want, uh, many would say, well, for my desires, I would like affirmation. Yeah. That, is, that is a desire of an expressive individual to have someone else come under my umbrella of reality and agree with me so that I feel good about what I'm doing. That's not, it's not going to work. Right. We are all trying to sort through what is reality, but we're not agreed on that. We're not even agreed that we're seeking objective reality anymore. Right. What, we, what we've kind of landed in without thinking, I think, is this trap of expressive individualism, which is, hey, you just keep doing you forever and it'll probably turn out fine. No, you yourself will end up lonely and discouraged and frustrated and angry because you're made for community. Mm -hmm. But you can't have community without any means of consistency, stability, definition beyond your own whims yeah. hope beyond your own desires we need these things and we're not getting them in the current system right that's exactly right um uh so oh hang on just so the uh in the book um the last chapter he kind of gets into um oh he gets into answering the question okay what do we do now so he's gone through the whole book, and he's laid out this, this explanation of how we've gotten to the point we are. And then the last chapter, it's, it's titled Strangers in a Strange New World. Um, and he basically, he says now, okay, what do we do? As Christians, as believers in this strange new world, what do we do? How are we to operate? 
And he, he kind of begins his discussion by pointing out that we as Christians for a long time, and I think we can all attest to this, for a good while now, many of us perhaps have been able to largely advocate. We've yep. been able to yep. avoid the issue. Yep. Um, by and large, um, that's been the case for me. I mean, I have not had to, other than a handful of occasions, um, had to very directly uh, face these sort of confrontations. And therefore, it's been very easy for us as as Christians, as believers, as churches, to say, eh, you know, whatever. Um, no longer will that be the case, at least not for much longer. You may be, and we maybe have been able to avoid this for a while, um, but we will not be able to forever. Right. And I would say the time is becoming nearer and nearer for most of us that this is going to be an issue that we have to face. And if we're going to face it, we have to be able to ask, how can we? What right. ought our response to be? What ought we to do? Yep. Um, and the first thing he, he talks about is that we need to understand our complicity in it. And yep. I think specifically he's talking with, with regards to churches and, yep. and the yep. church, universal. Yep. Um, what are the ways in which we have been complicit in that? Um, what would you say are some of the ways, Jackson, that the church has been somewhat complicit in the rise of this sort of expressive individualism? Oh, uh, the church has certainly, I mean, we are in no way exempt and we have gone along with uh, almost every tide of consumerism, which is basically do what feels good to you, buy the things that you want to buy. Uh, we have not practiced holiness in the way that, that Christ would have us, meaning, look, if we're here to live for Christ, then it's not about our desires. It's not about um, it's not about getting everything that we want, and it's not about feeling great uh, about ourselves. Um, and, and especially the church, we've been able in a lot of ways to go, well, there's a lot of things that are happening out there that are probably, people are probably dying, and things are probably not going well for them, but, you know, our church is in the suburbs or our, our church is not really affected by this. Uh, we have been way too open to go, well, our church is doing okay. So we won't seek to get muddy in those issues and speak to the challenges that, that people are having. Um, and that's, that's to our shame mm -hmm. because in a lot of ways, uh, this is an issue that has been playing out for a long time. And we have lost sight of the fact that, um, one, uh, our churches ought to be hospitals for sinners, mm -hmm. uh, that we ought to be, uh, that to be a Christian is to be messy, but messy because you're helping people. For Jesus, what it meant is he had to get bloody. He, he, he bled so that healing could come to others. And um, too often, we don't even want to look down that road of getting to the point of suffering for the point, for the purpose of helping our neighbors. Yeah. Um, and, and so it's true and there's nothing to say, but, uh, I'm complicit in that because it is in some ways you can tie up for yourself a simple, nice Christian life that doesn't make the moves that Jesus made to help people. Yeah. But by and large in doing that, I think we find ourselves disengaged from the culture. Yep. Altogether, and so the very group that we are called to go and reach, to go and make disciples of, um, we have been able to very conveniently yep. um, just avoid altogether, yep. which is not okay, and that's not what we're called to do. I think we we when we come, we see this, see someone stuck in the mud on the side of the road, mm -hmm. proverbially, um, we have a tendency to find it very easy to pull up our pant legs uh, and make our way through, so as not to get dirty. 
rather than what we're called to do, which is, hey, I'm going to I want to risk getting dirty to, to step in here and help you, yep. um, which is what we're called to do. I think that's a good point. Um, I think one of the ways he, he talks about the way the, the church has become complicit in this is that he talks about how there's so many denominations yep. um, within America, uh, within our culture, and that's due largely to the religious liberty that we have, which yep. is a good thing. Yep. It is a good thing. But one of the outcomes of that has been that the church and and kind of the church at large, religion itself, has become a sort of marketplace mm-hmm. where people are are able to be basically customers and churches yep. are vendors. Yep. And they can go and select the, uh, the church that best suits their own desires, their yep. own wants, their own needs, um, a church that kind of makes them happy. Yep. Um, and what that is doing, like it or not, and even if I don't, <laughs> I sit here, I don't have a great answer as to how to remedy that, as I am someone who is firmly rooted in a denomination, uh, unashamedly so. Um, I, uh, I, I don't have a great answer as to how to remedy that, but we can at least say that has been a contributing factor to, even within the church, yep. fostering expressive individualism mm-hmm. um, and something we need to push against. And the idea of commitment to a local church at the expense of yourself, yep. at, at the cost of sacrificing for others, specifically right. the people in that church, is a hard thing to call people to, but it's what... I am proposing that we call people to. Well, and, 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 you know, if this sounds a little bit outlandish, um, thankfully, through means of other good authors, um, if somebody asks me, how do I know which church I should be a part of? I had a college student ask me last week, how do I know which campus ministry to be involved in? Thankfully, because of the work of of other authors, uh, I've been able to answer that question by saying, rather than ask which one you like the most, why don't you ask which one you could serve the best in? Uh, that's a mature way to handle church membership um, because we do. We often just ask, what, did I like the music? Did I, uh, were they nice to me? Did I get uh, you know, the things that I really wanted out of it? And that's, to be, that's behaving like a consumer mm-hmm. uh, rather than uh, what, we are, what we ought to be doing if we are in Christ is to say, uh, how can be, I be of use in the kingdom? Yeah. Uh, a kingdom where uh, widows are cared for and orphans have somebody watching out for them where the poor are cared for and, and uh, all these things. I, I say them and, and I, I want us to be doing better than we are on them, but we are still, uh, um, they are perpetually struggles for us. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. And I, I would say that I hear what you're saying and maybe this goes back to that, I, you know, part of the problem with denominations, but I would, I would want to say to that person, yes, find the place that you can serve, um, but do that also in line with looking at scripture and saying, is this church doing what the Bible says churches ought to be doing? Sure. Is this church believing sure. uh, what the Bible teaches? Because it could be very easy to get plugged into um, a church or a campus ministry that I would never in my life refer someone to. Yeah. Um, so so taking those two in tandem, I think um, I agree with you, but I think I would like to say that as well. That's a part of maybe my unwarranted, but uh, but I guess caution that I have. Um. The, the other thing he says, and I think this kind of hit home, and I think it's worth considering, he says there are areas, talking about our complicity, he said there are other areas of Christian complicity as well. How many churches have taken a firm stance on no-fault divorce, a concept yep. predicated on a view of marriage that sees it as being no significance uh, once the personal happiness of one or both parties isn't being met? Yep. 
that was kind of a tough question. Yes. H- has has my church ever said anything? Uh, have have we ever, you know, even considered how it is that we are are pushing against or promoting the idea of marriage or pushing against the idea of no fault divorce? Uh, he goes on to say, how many Christians allow their emotions to govern their ethics when a beloved relative or friend comes out as gay or transgendered? We are all complicit at some level in the world that I have described in this book. And I think there's a lot of truth in that. Now, I'd, that doesn't mean every single one of us in here has compromised in one of these areas. Um, but one thing this made me think of as a church, I, you know, I'm a pastor, you're a pastor. Um, how is it that a church can speak out against something like no-fault divorce? Because um, I think there are passages is passages in Scripture um, that maybe could would speak to the issue, the speaking of the importance, the significance of marriage and this and that. But um, it is a tough thing to consider, okay, how can my church take a stance on these things? Because it, you then have to say, well, it's not just this one thing. You know, it's not just no-fault divorce, but it's no-fault divorce. It's homosexuality. It's um, alcoholism. It's, uh, mm. you know, petty theft. I don't know. What, whatever it may be, there's a whole laundry list of things that largely the culture is just uh, accepting of or is is perpetuating that we need to be speaking out against. So the question we need to be asking is, is how can we do that? Um, obviously, we need to be preaching the Word of God. Yep. And, and I think there is an argument here to be made for um, expositional preaching, for taking a book of the Bible and preaching that book of the Bible from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the reasons why I say this is a good strategy to help with this is because when you take a book of the Bible, say, for example, Matthew, if you just preach from Matthew, starting in chapter one, verse one, and start making your way through the book, whatever comes up next, that's the next text you're going to preach. Well, by the end of chapter eight, you're going to have covered all of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, you're going to have covered Jesus' life and earthly, his, uh, his birth and earthly ministry, um, all kinds of things. And therefore, you're going to have have had to touch on a whole plethora of topic, topics if you've been faithful to the Word of God. Yeah. And so it sort of saves us from, you know, tiptoeing around things that we wouldn't necessarily want to preach on if given the option. Yep. It sort of forces us into it. Yep. What are some other ways you think that a church can um, not be so complicit in in some of these things? Yeah, I mean, the question I hear you asking, which all of our churches have to be working on, is things like, Okay, you find out someone from your congregation is, is seeking divorce or going through a divorce. How do you care for them? Yeah. You need to work that out. Mm-hmm. It's messy. It's challenging. You need to work that out. You need to be thinking about that. And you go, well, I, I don't know of any biblical examples. Um, think about when Jesus sees and, and engages with the woman at the well. Uh, this is pastoral care, but it's complex. Yeah. Uh, he, he says he engages her on some of the questions that she has, but he says things like, oh, why don't you go call your husband and we can talk more about this, to which she says, oh, I don't have a husband. He says, uh, well, <laughs> you've had five husbands and the man you're with now is not your husband, but let's talk about where you are and what's going on with your heart and, and moves through things. And Jesus is the master at these sort of things, but we do have the example in scripture of how to do this. Uh, love is sustaining Love can be complex, mm-hmm. but we cannot, it is not uh, Christian of us to give up on 
anyone. Um, and, and people, one thing I can say, and, and many people have not had this experience, so I really do want to share it. In working with young people for 20 years, one thing that I can say, take heart to people about all relationships is that people can tell the difference if you're telling them something because you love them and you're telling them something just to say, basically, like, I'm done dealing with you. And if you can figure out what you would say to these people because you love them, to all, I mean, whatever your struggle is. And when I say these people, I mean somebody in your life that you're having problems because you just uh, lost your parents and you're fighting over an inheritance. People in your life who you're having a neighbor, you're having a dispute with. I mean, the line for us to walk is, how do you tell the truth in love? What would it be to, to keep loving these people? Uh, it's, it's, if you keep trying to walk that line, man, you will find yourself in some very unique and interesting situations. And that's where life is. Um, to love someone is to lay down your life for them daily, sometimes big in, in large parts, sometimes in small parts. Um, but that's the challenge, and it's, it's worth living. It makes, it, makes for, it makes for an enjoyable, meaningful uh, life experience to live that way. Yeah. And that's what we're called to. None of us are doing this. Frankly, none of us are doing this terribly well. <laughs> but it, man, this is a worthwhile way to live. And, uh, and I hope I can do it in some fashion. Yeah. Yeah. Here, here's what I would say. And maybe this would be the, uh, one of the biggest hot takes of the, of the podcast. But we, we, lit, we talked before we started this book, we talked about a podcast or excuse me, a, um, an article written by Kevin DeYoung um, in which he talked about the power of a two parent home. Sure. And in that podcast, he said something that I'm going to kind of build upon, you know, reiterate here, is that there are some things that the church, and I would say even the culture at large, it would be best for the culture. Um, there's some things that ought to be stigmatized. Yeah. We hear all the time about destigmatizing this yeah. and stigma is bad. And that's what we are, we are called to, by the culture, by the world around us, we are expected to understand that stigma is bad. Um, the argument I would make is that, no, there are some things that absolutely should be stigmatized. Yeah, sure. um, and we as a church need to recognize that. And even though we don't want to, um, now what does it look like to, for something to be stigmatized? What does it look like to maintain a stigma around something? What I'm not proposing is that when we see someone engaging in this idea, we begin public shaming, okay. we begin um, ridicule, we begin uh, gossip and and these like that, nor am I proposing that all things that uh, we would say are sinful or wrong or quote unquote stigmatized, um, that they should face some sort of legal punishments sure. for. That's not what I'm yep. proposing. Um, but I am proposing that as the Bible does, as Christ does, even in his inter interaction with that woman, we call sin, sin. Yep. And we don't ever shy away from that. Right. Um, that is the challenge. He talked about that example of when a loved one comes out as gay or transgender. The response cannot be, well, no problem. It's okay. Right. It can't be, well, maybe I can find a way to make this okay. No, the response has to be to call that person to repentance, to say that is wrong, that is sinful, but that is hard to do. Like yeah. you said, it's messy and we don't like to do it, but I think it's, um, I think it's a necessary process in being faithful to what God has called us to do, to operate faithfully as strangers in this strange world. So he talks about kind of our role in being complicit in these things. But then he goes and says, okay, what? how can we do better? How can we begin to operate more faithfully in these areas? If we're going to have to face these things, what's the best strategies that we can adopt? And he proposes looking at um, the ancient church, kind of the early post-apostolic church, and yep. say, 
what can we learn from them? Because in a lot of ways, the struggles that the church faces today, the persecution, the, um, the animosity that we face today is not all that unlike what they faced at the time, though mm -hmm. maybe the issues are slightly different. At the same time, the church was still largely marginalized, um, was looked down upon, was uh, sort of ridiculed. You know, what's interesting is, is the early church was accused of things like incest. Not because they were committing incest, but because when the culture around them heard them calling one another brothers and sisters, uh, and then they say, wait, that's your wife. Yeah, sure. You're married to your sister? And then the accusations begin to fly. Okay, you, you believe nothing. We were the early Christians. When I say we, uh, early Christians were con, con, um, oh, were accused of uh, polytheism that we believed in multiple gods because of their view of the Trinity and, and our view of the Trinity that we still maintain. There was all kinds of confusion and and marginalization that was happening to the early church and ridicule. Um, and what was the early church's response? Well, largely, the, the best apologetic that the early church had was just being the church that the Bible called them to be, yep. gathering together for worship, teaching the Word of God. Um, he says, uh, Carl Truman talks about in his book, um, that one of the greatest apologetics that we have and the greatest way to foster a, a good sort of apologetic is to live in community with one another. And he talks about the role that community plays in our identity he says, the strongest identities I have forming my strongest intuitions derive from the strongest communities to which I belong. And that means the church needs to be the strongest community to which we belong. Yeah. And so when we think about as a church, as the church, what is the best way that we can produce a um, produce an answer to the world? What's the best way that we can stand firm in the face of, of persecution, of animosity, of marginalization? Well, number one, we need to foster community. Yep. We need to be committed one to another. I've been reading a book for seminary called When the Church Was a Family. And it's just a great book that argues for a much more biblical, a much uh, a view of the church tied much more directly to what the early church would have known. Yep. That says we view one another in a very familial way yeah. uh, to where even to the point that when we have families, when I get married and I have kids, you know, it's a common refrain here that um, uh, our kind of priorities is my family, my church, and my country. And that sounds great. And those are good priorities. But I would argue that it is not a right prioritization to say my family, my church, my country. But rather to say, especially when you think about the, the role that my family plays with my church family, it ought to be my family within the context of my church, that the two are ought to be viewed in this way, not as, as one taking priority of the other, but as one being an overarching priority that my entire, my biological family, so my wife, my children, I view my relationship to them not in a list along with my relationship to the church, but I view it within the context of my relationship to the church, um, to where my family is not prioritized over the church, um, nor really is the church prioritized over my family, but it is to say the church is my family yeah. and I am raising my family within the family, if that makes sense. Sure. Uh, and I think that sort of fostering of community can be a very, very, very strong bulwark um, in, in fostering an identity that stands out to the world. What do you think? Yeah, 
in regard to this, uh, we're going to have to be a peculiar people, a people that look different. Um, and that's going to play itself out more and more and more. There are principles we've been talking about through this whole book. But um, look, if you read the Bible, you will find principles to live by. And those are life-giving principles that God has given us. And so we can't afford, one, to assume that everyone understands what we're doing. We're going to have to explain ourselves. Uh, but two, we, we can't live for the approval of man. We can't live, uh, the Old Testament word would be man-pleasers. We can't, we can't live thinking we're going to make everybody happy. Uh, it's just not the way it's going to be. And, and that's, in, in our very strange, you know, the, the mid-1900s really left us with this very strange sort of um, vaguely Christian culture. But that time has passed, and that's okay. Um, and God is at work. God was at work in the very pagan culture that uh, the New Testament was written in, uh, where Jesus came. Uh, and God has been at work in many cultures since then, and is at work in various different cultures right now. We're not the end-all, be-all here in the West. Uh, we're just one phase, uh, and faithfulness to God is the only thing that we can do, uh, and I hope we can do it. Yeah. Absolutely. So finally, as we just kind of conclude, I, there's a few other things that he points out that I think are worth saying. Um, when we consider how it is that the church can be, um, the church in and of itself, just being the church can be an apologetic to the world. Um, one of the ways that he proposes, two, two, two different things, I would say, um, creeds and confessions. Mm. He proposes that there is no reason why these things should fade away into the past, but ought to be something that as, as useful as they were to the early church, we ought to consider their usefulness for us today, that they do serve as a uh, tested through time, most of them, um, and very useful and, and helpful source for just clearly stating and rooting ourselves in biblical doctrine. Right. Um, and he also argues for, for catechisms. Yep. Um, for those of you listening who maybe have only heard of catechism within the context of the Roman Catholic world, guess what? It didn't used to be. Uh, in fact, catechisms and the process of catechesis has been something practi practiced by Protestant churches for hundreds of years that I think is worthwhile at least considering, considering yep. as a church, yep. as a family, um, putting them back into practice as a way of rooting ourselves deeply in the doctrine of Scripture, the whole counsel of God. And then the other thing he argues for, and this one I thought was interesting and sort of, I don't know, I guess I didn't expect it. Uh, to be one of his kind of proposals, but um, he proposes that we ought to heavily consider and recognize the role that singing plays in our worship and the impact that has on how we even mm -hmm. are identified in our faith. And we've had kind of, man, if you are grown up in the church, you've probably heard debates, discussions, regarding the role of worship music and worship songs. Um, are we called to um, exercise our emotions in worship? Should worship be emotionless? Uh, what kind of songs are acceptable to sing in worship? What kinds aren't? Um, and Carl Truman does not argue for um, necessarily one position or the other, but he does say we ought to consider the songs that we sing and, and the role that they play in our worship yeah. and saying we shouldn't. Just, just get rid of all emotion. Sure. But we ought to consider how the songs we sing um, and the emotions that they make us feel, what role they play in our lives. Yeah. Um, we ought to select songs that are true, 
that are right, that are theologically sound. Um, but it doesn't mean that we avoid all emotion. Right. <laughs> and I think there is a temptation for um, certain groups of people um, to say, well, I liked it, but uh, that worship was just a little too emotional for me, yeah. too, uh, too much of an emotional appeal. And then there are certainly people who um, are happy as long as they get emotional. Exactly. And so exactly. there are questions certainly there. Yeah. He, he proposes in the book, um, he says, I'm not, I'm not saying that we should sing exclusively psalms. There are some churches that do, sure. that psalms make up 100% of their worship. Um, and he, he's not proposing that. But he does say we at least ought to consider um, singing psalms. He says in this book, I'll just quote him, I don't think, as some do, that the church should sing only psalms. I am inclined to say that singing more psalms, or any psalms if you do not sing them already, would be an excellent place to start. Uh, he proposes that they were presented uh, and were, for the early church, a psalter. They were um, a way of, of, as Christians, to express sorrow and joy and all of these things through the psalms really, really, really rich um, artistic poetry verse that's given to us in Scripture. And so I think at least considering, okay, what are the usefulness of the Psalms in our worship? Um, but then finally he concludes by talking about uh, the role that the natural law plays um, in this discussion. And we said it in an earlier podcast, I am one person who is very quick to, if I'm going to explain to someone why something I believe is is true or right with regards to sexuality with regards to um the the moral revolution these kinds of things i'm probably going to appeal to scripture if you don't believe in scripture i'm sorry if you don't believe in god i'm sorry but it's what i have and it's what i'm going to appeal to um and you were i think wise enough to push back a little bit and say yes but natural law does play a role Um, natural law provides for us a means to look around and say look a man and a man does not a child produce but a man and a woman in marriage, as God intended, natural law says this is proper and this is what produces life. Um, and we can look at other various kind of forms of, of natural law. And I know it's something I hear you talk about a little more than, uh, than myself, but it comes alongside, I think, um, biblical arguments as a, as a um, I don't know, a, a sort of strengthening of the argument that the Bible already makes. The Bible says this is true because God has commanded it. Mm -hmm. Um, But because God has commanded it and has put it, worked it into nature, into his creation, we see the truthfulness of this being expressed in the world around us. So that when someone asks the question, um, okay, so God says not to do this, um, but it seems like he just wants to deny me happiness. Mm. Seems like he's just being a jerk. And I would be very happy if I did this thing, but God's just telling me not to, to prevent me from being happy. And we say, no, that's not at all the case. And natural law would say, no, that's not the case. Um, But actually, the thing that God has commanded us to do, creation attests to the rightfulness of that. Mm -hmm. And we see this in marriage. We see this in um, our sexuality. We see this uh, in how we operate with our children and how we operate in community with one another. We even see natural law playing a role in that as well. So there's a lot more that could probably be said about this book. I think we've been talking for a while now today. And so I don't know that there's any need to say more, but um, if you have listened to this whole series on Carl Truman's strange new world, 
thank you so much for listening. <laughs> and um, I hope that one day you can get a life and uh, will not spend hours and hours and hours. No, I'm just kidding. I hope that you all did listen to this. But we're thankful for you guys as listeners. Um, uh, do you have any more thoughts about the book, Jackson? Or I'm, I am, have been glad to do it, and I look forward to moving on to other things as well. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, who knows what's next? Right. Um, we'll, we'll see what's next coming around the bend, but hopefully we'll see you guys tune in uh, to whatever we have next. We will see you... Oh, wait, Jackson? How's our conclusion go? This has been Empires of the Future. And we'll see you in the future.